Hi, my name is John Kitchens, and I'm with Retina Associates of Kentucky in Lexington, Kentucky. And I'm joined tonight by Carl Danzig, who's uh, the Director of Vitreal Retinal Services at the RAND Eye Institute. Carl, it's great to see you again. Great being here. Good seeing you too, John. We're going to talk about some really interesting cases of exudative AMD. Mine's actually going to be um, a non-exudative or, or a patient who has um, uh, an atypical coronavascular membrane. So it's not quite an exudative AMD, but it's really a very pure example of neovascularization and how it responds to therapies. Uh, this is our disclosures. So we're going to talk about optimizing management strategies in challenging cases. And this is really centered around coronavascularization, particularly for our, our patients with exudative age-related macular degeneration. With that being said, I'm going to start off with someone who is not exudative age-related macular degeneration. This is a very interesting case of a 15-year-old Latino woman, girl, um, who's come to see me, and um, she's uninsured. And so fortunately for her, we have access to samples. And so everything that we've done for this patient's care has been pro bono. We don't charge for any samples, and we haven't charged her for any of her treatments, um, very sweet girl. Uh, she showed up when she was 15 in February of 2022 with decreased vision in her left eye for about a month. No history of exposures um, and uh, everything else was normal. No intraocular inflammation. And this is what her exam looked like. You know, in Kentucky, Carl, we have a lot of ocular histoplasmosis. She had no signs of ocular histoplasmosis syndrome, no peripheral punched out lesions, no significant parapapillary hyperplasia, um, and nothing in the fellow eye. And then here we see this very unique uh, OCT in this patient that has almost purely subretinal fluid and then this nubbin that's under there that's actively leaking. And I, I'll have to just stop here, Carl, and ask you, have you ever seen anything like this? And does this ring any bells for anything that I'm not thinking about at this point? You know, this could be idiopathic. I mean, obviously, uh, I love how you describe it as this little nubbin because essentially that's what that's what it is. We have this uh, serious attachment of this fluid under the retina. We have this one leaking area. Uh, this is a young female. Central serous is always a possibility with the neovascular membrane, but it doesn't look like that when you when you just look at her and you see the 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 scan. I mean, I'd like to see a floor scene too, but I. I'm not impressed other than that one little area. I agree with you. There's no peripapular atrophy. There's no other lesions. This doesn't look inflammatory or uveitic. Sometimes you just see these uh, idiopathic neovascular membranes. Yeah, and that's what we called it. Here's her fellow eye, and then we can see her fundus autofluorescence here. No signs of choroiditis or anything else going on. And, and honestly, I was struggling because I was thinking, gosh, what really is this? And I, like you, I thought, could it be some atypical central serous because it was so much subretinal fluid? But the OCTA shows that it's clearly a choroidal neovascular membrane. Here we can see this is her OCTA actually after uh, one of her treatments. So it's not as pure of an OCTA as when she first came in and saw me in the satellite, but definitely seeing characteristics that are consistent with uh, a very classic and active coronavascularization. And I'm going to jump straight into her treatment, and we're going to look at her treatment in a couple of different ways. I've got different images kind of showing each treatment course, but this is an overall overview of her treatment. And we start out by giving her a bevacizumab injection, and we saw a nice response at three weeks. And notice I brought her back at three weeks. 
because honestly, I wanted to see a response because I still wasn't sure if this was truly CNVM or if it was a, a mimicker. Um, and because she looked better, we held off on the treatment, brought her back a couple of weeks later, and it was back to leaking again. We gave her another bevacizumab, and uh, I wanted to see her back in a week to make sure that it was getting better, and indeed it was. And then we held off on treatment, but brought her back in a month, and we continued her treatments. And I was very fortunate because we had just had ferisimab uh, approved, and so we had availability of samples for ferisimab. And I thought, you know what, here's this young girl, and she still has persistent leakage Half one month after bevacizumab, you know, could this be something inflammatory? I want to get that combination of an anti-VEGF and an ANG2 uh, for this person and treated her with ferisumab and had a greater drying effect with ferisumab. We didn't have a ferisumab then at that next visit. So we gave her a sample of a flibercept and then switched her back over to ferisumab. And it's very interesting what kind of happened. And I'm going to go in a little more detail here. This is her individual line scan. So you can just kind of see how she did indeed have some persistent fluid even one month after uh, the uh, bevacizumab. And then later on, you'll start to see that she's getting fluid uh, even despite monthly ferisumabs. And then at the very bottom, we get into where we switched over to a flibercept, eight milligrams. Now, this is a little more of a pure picture at the leakage that she's had. And I'm gonna highlight just a couple of these visits so you can kind of get a better idea of how she was responding individually. First, let's look Carl at her first injection and that three-week follow-up. And uh, we see a really nice, robust response. And so I really thought we were on the right track here. And like most myopic or histo-CNVMs, I thought a couple of injections and she's going to be good, but far from it in her case. Do you agree with that, Carl? Do you see that most of these patients that have you know, that are younger and have these classic membranes can actually do well with just a handful of injections? It depends if, if it's truly idiopathic, uh, commonly you're right. If it's myopic, absolutely. Uh, I don't have nearly as much histo in South Florida as, as you have, but I do have some snowbirds that have it that come down to see me. But some of these idiopathic cases are, it's a mixed bag. I have this one patient who moved from Chicago, uh, also Latino female, young, she's 30. And she has some kind of, something similar with a little bit different configuration of the RPE, but she had a couple, I thought we could go a long time and then she reactivated, fluid came back. And now we just do regular injections every few months. And she hasn't maintained great vision, but you know, not, your case here is definitely pretty dramatic and you see the fluctuation of fluid with a variety of treatments. And I, I would have been hopeful too, after one bevacizumab and seeing that response. Yeah. I mean, I was really thinking we we had a home run here, but unfortunately you'll see, you know, and this is the visit where we actually switched her over from uh, the bevacizumab to the frisimab, and we did see a really enhanced response. So one month after the bevacizumab, she still has fluid dramatically better after the one month after the frisimab injection. And uh, then she got an aflibercept injection and actually looked even better after that aflibercept injection. You can see here, she got a little additional drying. This was when we didn't have the ferisumab in clinic. And I didn't pick up on this at first, but as I'm going back through here and looking at this, I'm thinking, hey, you know what? She didn't look too bad after that aflibercept injection. And then it's really this visit here where we kind of got a little bit off track because she was looking good and we went six weeks uh, after her second of these two injections and this fluid recurred 
And man, we really struggled to get it back under control after that. So you can see here, she's got persistent fluid and, uh, and we're basically like right on, we're under a month after her last injection with fericimab. And she's got this, this, uh, this subretinal fluid that's showing up. And then finally, when we had the approval of a flibercept eight milligrams, I said, gosh, you know what? We've got samples of this. Let's really try and see if we can get her better. And I'll tell you, we gave her that injection and brought her back in a month. And she was the driest I've ever seen her. And she actually even said, hey, this is the first time that I've gone a whole month and my vision has been good. And surprisingly, you know, I think we kind of underappreciate visual acuity in some of our patients because we look at OCT so much. This is the first time she'd been 2020 in over a year. Every time she'd been 20, 30, um, and we assumed that was good enough, but she said, oh yeah, I read the chart better and I've seen good the entire month. Now, just a little of additional follow-up on her. Uh, she now is out to seven weeks in between on eight milligrams of a flibercept. And we do see a little bit of recurrence of fluid starting that subretinal fluid. And we're calling her at seven weeks um, uh, and continuing to utilize samples on her. But, uh, but boy, I'll tell you what, when you've got a 16-year-old girl that's in high school and is busy and active and things like that, um, I think we got to do everything we can to, you know, decrease her, her treatment burden. I know you wanted an angiogram, by the way. This was after, one month after an injection. I didn't get it on her initial visit, but you can just kind of see this nondescript choroidneovascular membrane that doesn't leak tremendously here because it's one month after an injection, but still it demonstrates the CNVM. Carl, any thoughts? Is this somebody that you may consider PDT on? A uh, combination of PDT and anti-VEGF to try and decrease the injection intervals or just be happy and try to eventually wear out this membrane with these injections? So a couple things, a couple thoughts here. You know, she started off at 2150 and ended up being 2020. So kudos to you, John, for, for doing everything and not giving up on, on this young lady. And great job for a high school student to put up with getting injections in her eye so often. I mean, to just think about it, you know, what you went through in high school yourself and your biggest worry was, you know, uh, some, some zit on your face. And this girl is getting a needle in her eye monthly. So, you know, great job for her. And I'm proud of her for doing that. I'm not a huge fan of doing PDT in this patient. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, just because I would worry, and maybe if you did half fluorescence, you could get it or even quarter fluorescence, but I certainly would not do full amount. It's a possibility, but I would want to talk to her first and go over, you know, what she wants to do. If she's willing to get these injections every seven weeks, then just do it. I mean, she is going to graduate high school, uh, sounds like in about a year or so, year and a half. And then there's supposed to be a game plan what happens after that. So um, she's young and she needs more treatment, but you did all the right things. I think that th though I do like fluorescent angiograms in many cases, I would, I liked in this case, just to make sure there's nothing else out in the periphery, but we knew from the OCTA that, that neovascular membrane was right there next to the fovea. And I just wonder if there's any other cause it could be, but it sounds like idiopathic to me. Yeah. I'm going to encourage her to go to college in Florida where she <laughs> could then come visit you. <laughs> so with that being said, Carl, I'd love to see your case. It looks really interesting. Let's jump right into it. Thank you, John. That was a fantastic case and provided really great discussion. And, you know, her story is yet to be uh, fully told. So I'm curious to hear more about her later. I'm now going to discuss a patient that's a high need patient uh, who completed clinical trial on our practice. She's 88 years old. 
uh, with neovascular AMD, and she has it in both eyes. In the right eye, diagnosed in December 2022, in the left eye, 2021. Here's a list of her injections in the right eye. I want to go over this again, but the left eye is a little bit more interesting because she was in the daylight study with a uh, tercosumab uh, KSI 301 versus a flibercep two milligrams. And as you can see in both eyes, she's received a flibercept, frisimab, and eight milligram a flibercept. So in her right eye that was diagnosed in December 2022, remember this is the eye that was not in a clinical trial. She had just a little bit of subfluvial fluid. Uh, there was a surprise to her that she even had wet AMD. We went over the fact that she has in her other eye is you know, a risk factor for it in this eye too. And we gave her three injections, uh, three monthly injections of aflibercept two milligrams, and, and she did well. But we wanted to see if we could have added durability and we switched her to furisimab. Uh, one of the reasons, as you'll see in a few moments, is that we had her on first, we had to switch for, to first web in her fellow eye and the left eye needed it because it was a higher need eye. And uh, given her insurance, uh, it was commercial insurance and it was much easier to get approval for one medicine for both eyes versus two different medications for each eye because that becomes a bit of a headache as I'm sure you'd agree with. Mm. Um, so she actually did okay with first but she needed monthly injections and she still had a little, little bit of fluid after the sixth injection. So we did two injections of high-dose aflibercept, eight milligrams, and she actually did quite well. And we see that here, that she has no CME, no subretinal fluid, good vision. Whereas with monthly furosemab, she started having a little disease activity. The left eye, this is really the more difficult eye, and this is the eye I'd like to talk more about. You can see here uh, on her initial visit in 2021 with her vision of 2063, uh, CST of 567, she was enrolled in the daylight trial. Um, but she came out of that trial still with some edema here and it looked improved, but still not great. Her vision improved a line, CST, 66 microns. And then she got six monthly injections of a flipped up two milligrams and her vision didn't improve actually is down a little bit but her cst much better still with a little edema we can't really see it on this scan but a little off center there was some and then she went on to get six monthly furisimab injections trying for more durability and she had some foveal cyst form her vision declined again so we switched her to eight milligrams, a flibercept, and she actually had a great response anatomically. Uh, her vision did not improve again, but she started developing a little GA in the fovea. And I think that explains some of her vision loss. I actually saw this patient again yesterday. So even though this photo is stable, you know, examined December, 2023, I saw her yesterday and at a six week interval, and she had the same uh, OCT. Whereas in the past, she would have monthly injections, whether in a clinical trial, whether outside a clinical trial, and she still had disease activity. And this was the first time at six weeks that she did not. So I don't have that picture because I saw her yesterday in our clinic, but uh, she's done well. Great case, Carl. I wonder just a quick question about her being in the clinical study. Do you know what arm she was randomized to? Was she randomized to the KSI 301 or a Flibercept? I don't know. 
And my thought would be, could she have been undertreated? You know, those patients in KSI 301 were notoriously undertreated. And might that have led to this kind of more persistent fluid um, in, in her situation? I think that's a really great point. But in the daylight study that they were receiving monthly injections. Oh, okay. Gotcha. They give it like a Merlin style trial design. Okay, perfect. So we know then she wasn't undertreated. And the second thing is it's very interesting that both eyes seem to respond better to the aflibercept eight milligrams than to really anything else. And it's just curious that both seemed like they responded better. I do seem to find that patients have some symmetry in their responses, not always. But if one eye responds better to fericimab, it seems like the other eye will too. And, and uh, likewise with a flibercept eight milligrams. Right. And the, the reason I like this case so much, so I think you bring up excellent points, but I think what we need to learn here, and is it highlighted in your case also, John, is why do some patients need a higher anti-VEGF dose and other patients benefit from dual pathway inhibition? Why one agent versus another? And I still think that we have very little idea and understanding of why one drug may work better for some patients and not others. Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that it's, it's, I really thought we'd have a clear cut winner by now between fericimab and aflibercept eight milligrams. And the more I use each of them, the more I realize we really don't, that we have two really better options for our patients, but it still seems like some patients respond better to fericimab and some to aflibercept eight milligrams. And I've switched them back and forth from one drug to the other. And I've seen that time and time again. And so it's nice to know that we have multiple different ways that we can attack disease processes like the processes like these. And it seems like more and more we're able to figure out that things work for people. You just have to trial and error and find out what is the best drug for that person. Cannot agree more, but it's an exciting time to be a retina specialist. And I, I know I can speak for the larger community, but we're all thankful to have uh, multiple choices and excellent medications for our patients because not everyone's the same. Everyone's an individual. And some of these hard to treat patients are not the ideal patients to, you know, as you talked about earlier, you know, be the barometer for how a medicine works. They are the most fun though. They're the ones that I, I actually enjoy to see because especially when we have new treatments. I don't like seeing them when I'm struggling and trying to use the same old stuff that we've always had and we, when we don't have innovation. But fortunately, in the last year, we've had tremendous innovation in the retina space. And, uh, and we need to be very grateful for that. Last thing, Carl, you showed that she was developing atrophy. And I've had several patients that have intraretinal edema and, it, and in one eye, subretinal fluid in the other eye. And it seems like that intraretinal edema eye develops atrophy more aggressively. The subretinal fluid eye seemingly doesn't develop as much atrophy. Have you seen anything like that in your patients? I think anecdotally, I would agree with you. Uh, I, I don't understand completely why. I never like to think that fluid's good. Like we all know that we prefer uh, to treat patients who have subretinal fluid versus intraretinal fluid. But I would like to see more research done on you know, the role of GA progression in patients who have overlying intraretinal fluid. Absolutely. Carl, these have been great cases. It's been great hanging out with you tonight and talking about interesting cases. I think we could go on and on, but uh, unfortunately, we've got to cut it short there. Really want to appreciate you and appreciate everyone for joining us. Thanks, John. This has been a really great experience and hopefully be more uh, discussion uh, in the future for, you know, more drugs and more interesting patients. So, Thanks again.